A multi-year project at the Library of Congress aims to bring more black, indigenous, and other minority groups closer to the library. It's called Of the People, Widening the Path. Now the project's digital component has a new program director. Maria McCorder joins me now. Ms. McCorder, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. Great to be here. Tell us about the bigger project here, the Of the People, Widening the Path. What is it all about? What does it aim to do? Great. Well, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to be able to talk with you um, and your listeners directly about this uh, this new initiative. It's called Of the People, Widening the Path, and it's a multi-year initiative that creates new opportunities for more people in the United States to engage with the Library of Congress, uh, to engage with the Library of Congress's collections, and to allow the National Library to share more stories about the U.S. It's supported by a grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, And, um, you know, again, it's really about promoting outreach, technology and innovation and archives development for and by black, indigenous and other communities of color. Is there a sense that those groups don't have enough of their work that would otherwise be worthy of preservation in the Library of Congress? Oh, not at all. I mean, there's a there's a long history of materials by um, and about uh, Black, Indigenous, and other communities of color, you know, that go back to the last two centuries. But, you know, in response, you know, to public demand, in response to um, particular interests around uh, these individuals and, and communities, and in response to a national conversation about civil rights, you know, the Library of Congress is always um, expanding and being open that this was a wonderful opportunity to let you know everyone know that there are materials, and particularly in my case, digital collections that they can explore and use. Got it. And tell us then about the digital component that you're working on. The program that I'm directing is Connecting Communities Digital Initiative, or CCDI. And with this particular program, we're focused specifically on digital collections. And, and, you know, obviously in with 2020, with the advent of, of COVID, people could not come to the library, could not go to the library. And so this was an opportunity to highlight once again that the Library of Congress has digital collections that you can use from your home. So Connecting Communities Digital Initiatives supports uh, and offers grants to higher education institutions to libraries, archives, and museums, and also to scholars and artists, really for them to explore the digital collections and reimagine and remix them in new ways and create new projects based on those digital collections. And what are some of the pieces in the digital collection? That is, is it older material that has been digitized? And could it also be new materials that were born digital to begin with? Yes, that's that's exactly right, Tom. It, it is the materials that um, have been digitized The Library of Congress has a a digital strategy. The CCDI that I'm a part of is also, um, in addition to being part of of the People Initiative, it's also within the digital strategy directorate within the Library of Congress. So yes, there are quite a bit, a large number of digital collections, collections that have been digitized, and also there are also born digital materials as well. So for example, if somebody wanted to take the writings of Harriet Tubman, for example, and the materials related to her, which obviously were not created digitally, but may have been digitized, they could combine them in some manner, or I guess anybody could, with, say, contemporary music and create whatever it is they wanted to create? Yes, yes, that's exactly right. And, you know, the LC Labs, which is also part of the Digital Strategy Directorate, has an innovator in residence program. And and one of those innovators created a citizen DJ 
program that made materials that was in the uh, materials that were in the public domain, uh, songs that were in the public domain. And so people could exactly, as you're saying, remix and imagine, reimagine in new ways. Exactly. We're speaking with Maria McCorder. She is program director of the Connecting Communities Digital Initiative at the Library of Congress. And as I understand it, you are new to the library and new to the federal government. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your background? Where'd you come from? <laughs> Thank you, Tom. I am new to the library as uh, as an employee, but I also say that I'm also old to the library as well because, and it feels like home to me because I actually, as a user, I have been using the Library of Congress since the late 1980s for either as a, as a research assistant uh, for my own dissertation research and just projects that I've worked on over the years. So it's I feel both new and old in terms of my relationship to the Library of Congress. And actually, I am not new to the federal government either. I worked as, as a historian at the National Museum of African American History and Culture that's part of the uh, Smithsonian. Which has an impressive digital program of its own, by the way. Most definitely, most definitely. I worked actually uh, quite a bit in terms of making the materials available um, virtually to users as uh, as a visual arts historian. Uh, so very wonderful experience. But yes, I am new to, uh, to the Library of Congress uh, as an employee for sure. And before coming here, really starting full-time in uh, January, so just uh, just been a, a month full time with the, with the library, and before this, I was a faculty member in the Department of History at the University of Arizona, where I um, actually inaugurated another initiative uh, focusing on on public history there. And you were also, when you were at Arizona, you were a faculty member in the Africana Studies program. How do you distinguish Africana with Africa? What's the meaning of that word? I haven't seen that one. Yeah, that's uh, an interesting question. Well, I, I do want to make clear that I actually was a faculty member in the Department of History, and I was an affiliate faculty member in Africana Studies as well as uh, the School of Art. But yeah, a- Africana, st- the distinction is the Africana uh, relates to uh, notions of the diaspora, you know, so that it's not necessarily people of African descent on the African continent, but people of African descent in the U.S., in the Caribbean, uh, you know, in Europe. So it's it's got a kind of diasporic feel to it. And I wanted to ask you about another earlier project, DC 1968, a digital humanities project highlighting art, activism, architecture, and everyday life in 1968 in Washington, D.C. And of course, that was a pivotal year for the wrong reason, unfortunately, in Washington, D.C., the assassination of Martin Luther King transform the city and not in a good way. Tell us a little bit more about that for those of us that remember it. Okay, yeah. Yeah, the the DC 1968 project is a project um, that I initiated in part because I I feel actually that people have a misunderstanding of 1968, that that obviously, you know, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. uh, being assassinated is uh, is an awful thing and and a tragic thing. But I think people misunderstand the range of reactions that people had to the assassination of King. So part of what my project was, was really uh, an attempt to get people to, again, rethink and reimagine 1968. It it was a moment in which the Poor People's Campaign was um, was instituted um, in the summer. It was also a time in which a number of, of institutions were created and built, some institutions that still continue today. And so I wanted to offer a much more broader and much more expansive and fuller understanding 
of Washington, D.C. throughout the entire year. And I'll just also say, Tom, part of the reason why I was so invested and continue to be invested in this project is because I am a Washingtonian. I was born and raised here. And so my understanding of the city is comes from thinking about it intellectually and also because I feel it so viscerally as well. And so I wanted to bring that feel to it. Yes, people often forget D.C. is lots of people's hometown and not just the international and worldwide famous capital that you see on television at night. Exactly, exactly. Maria McCorder is a program director of the Connecting Communities Digital Initiative at the Library of Congress. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Tom. It was great to meet you and talk to you soon, maybe. All right. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also 
reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us, um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not... my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.